0: Welcome back to the Hemingway Listic Podcast, the best podcast ever. Redoing this episode because my microphone didn't work again for no reason. I love it. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Um here's the conversation for you. Um Philip still has a deep sense of shame, swims to the mummy officials a bit like a oh, boohoo, Philip, get over it. You've screwed yourself over with poor management, poor money manage- money management. And said that shame is the happiness killer and it arises from a faulty perspective of a sense of values. Philip is and has been something of a snob. His current circumstances prevents him from enjoying the company of his associates. His desire for his uncle's death is sadly human. Jan Brunt said it was Thanksgiving Day and gave thanks for this podcast and for my efforts in producing it, and I said you're welcome and it's my pleasure. And that is a very very quick version of the conversation that I've reduced by about 10 minutes to about 30 seconds. Uh, I did this podcast last night and it had an audio glitch so I'm going to speed read you this chapter. Why is it always like the longest and boringest chapters that I seem to have to redo? Philip gets all philosophical in this chapter and it is very very boring so let's read it. Chapter one hundred and six. Philip avoided the place he had known in happier times as the little gatherings at the tavern in Beak Street were broken up. McAllister, having let his friends down, no longer went there and Hayward was at the Cape. Only Lawson remained, and Philip, feeling that now the painter and he had nothing in common, did not wish to see him, but one Saturday afternoon after having dinner, after changing his clothes and walk down Regent Street to go and get a free library in St. Martin's Lane, meaning to spend the afternoon there, he suddenly found himself face to face with Lawson. His first instinct was to pass on without a word, but Lawson did not give him the opportunity. Where on earth have you been all this time? he cried. I said, Philip. I wrote to you and asked you to come to the studio for a beano, and you never answered. I didn't get your letter. No, I know. I went to the hospital to ask for you, and I saw my letter in the rack. Have you chucked, Have you chucked the medical? Philip hesitated for a moment, he was ashamed to tell the truth, but the shame he felt angered him, and he forced himself to speak. he could not help but redden. Yes, I lost the little money I had. I couldn't afford to go on with it. I say, I'm awfully sorry. What are you doing? I'm a shop walker. The words choked Philip, but he was determined not to shirk the truth. He kept his eyes on Lawson and saw his embarrassment. Philip smiled savagely. If you went into Lynn and Sedley, made your way into the robe maid robe's department, you would see me in a frock coat walking about with a degage air and directing ladies who want to buy petticoats or stockings, first to the right, madam, and second on the left. Lawson, seeing that Philip was making a jest of it, laughed awkwardly. He did not know what to say. The picture of Philip called up horrified him. "'But he was afraid to show his sympathy. "'That's a bit of a change for you,' he said. "'His words seemed absurd to him, and immediately wished he did not say them. "'Phillips flushed darkly. "'A bit,' he said. "'By the way, I owe you five bob.' "'He put his hand in his pocket and pulled out some silver. "'Oh, it doesn't matter. I've forgotten all about it. "'Go on, take it.' "'Lawson received the money silently. "'They stood in the middle of the pavement, and people jostled at them as they passed. "'There was a sardonic twinkle in Philip's eyes, "'which made the painter intensely uncomfortable, "'and he could not tell that Philip's heart was heavy with despair. "'Lawson wanted dreadfully.' To do something but he did not know what to do i say won't you come to the studio and have a talk no said philip why not there's nothing to talk about he saw the pain come into lawson's eyes he could not help it he was sorry but he had to think of himself he could not bear the thought of discussing his situation he could endure it only by determining resolutely not to think about it he was afraid of his weakness if he began to open his heart Moreover, he took irresistible dislikes to the places where he had been miserable. He remembered the humiliation he had endured when he had waited in that studio, ravenous with hunger for Lawson to offer him a meal, and the last occasion when he had taken five shillings off him. He hated the sight of Lawson because he recalled those days of utter abasement. Then, look here, come and dine with me one night. Choose your own evening. Philip was touched with the pain of his kindness. All sorts of people were strangely kind to him, he thought. It's awfully good of you, old man, but I'd rather not. He held out his hand. Goodbye. Lawson, troubled by a behaviour which seemed inexplicable, took his hand and Philip quickly and limped away. His heart was heavy, and as was usual with him, he began to reproach himself for what he had done. He did not know what madness of pride had made him refuse the offered friendship, but he heard someone running behind him, and presently Lawson's voice calling him. He stopped, and suddenly for feeling of hostility got the better of him. He presented to Lawson a cold, set face. What is it? I suppose you heard about Hayward, didn't you? I know he went to the Cape. He died, you know, soon after landing." For a moment, Philip did not answer. He could hardly believe his ears. How? Oh, enteric. Hard luck, wasn't it? I thought you might know. It gave me a bit of a turn when I heard it. Lawson nodded quickly and walked away. Philip felt a shiver pass through his heart. He had never before lost a friend of his own age, for the death of Cronshaw, a man so much older than himself, had seemed to come in a normal course of things. The news gave him peculiar shock. It reminded him of his own mortality, or for like everyone else... Philip, knowing perfectly that all men must die, had no intimate feeling that the same must apply to himself, and Hayward's death, though he had long ceased to have any warm feeling for him, affected him deeply. He remembered on a sudden all the good talks they had had, and it pained him to think that they would never talk with one another again. He remembered the first meeting and the pleasant months they had spent in Heidelberg. Philip's heart sank as he thought of the lost years. He walked on mechanically, not noticing where he went, and realised suddenly with a movement of irritation that instead of returning down Haymarket, he had sauntered along Shaftesbury Avenue. It bored him to retrace his steps, and besides, with that news, he did not want to read. He wanted to sit alone and think. He made up his mind to go to the British Museum. Solitude was now his only luxury, since he had been... At Linz he had often gone there and sat in front of the groups from the pantherion and, not deliberately thinking, had allowed their divine masses to rest his troubled soul. But this afternoon, they had nothing to say to him, and after a few minutes, impatiently, he wandered out of the room. There was too many people, provincials, fully faces, foreigners, poring over guidebooks, and their hideousness besmirched the everlasting masterpieces. Their masterpieces. Their restlessness troubled the god's immortal response. He went into another room and here there was hardly anyone philip sat down wearily his nerves were on edge he could not get the people out of his mind sometimes at lins they affected him in the same way and he forced and he looked at them file past him with horror They were so ugly, and there was meanness in their face. It was terrifying. Their features were distorted and paltry desires, and you felt they were strange to any ideas of beauty. They had furtive eyes and weak chins. There was no weakness in them in the under and vulgarity. Their humor was low and facetious. Sometimes he found himself looking at them to see what animal they resembled. He tried not to, but for quickly became an obsession, and he saw them all for sheep or horse or fox or goat. Human beings filled him with disgust. But presently the influence of the place descended upon him, he felt quieter. he began to look absently at the tombstones with which the room was filled. They were the work of Athenian stonemasons of the 4th and 5th centuries before Christ, and they were very simple, work of no great talent, but with the exquisite spirit of Athens upon them. Time had mellowed the marble to colour the honey, so the, the unconsciously one thought of bees, of Haematos and softened their outlines some represented a nude figure seated on a bench some the departure of the dead from whose those who loved him and some the dead clasping hands with one who remained behind on all was the tragic word farewell that and nothing more their simplicity was infinitely touching friend parted from friend the son from his mother and the restraint made the survivors grief more poignant it was so long long ago and century upon century had passed over that unhappiness for 2000 years those who wept had been dust as those who wept for. Yet the woe was alive, and it filled Philip's heart, so that he felt compassion spring up in it, and he said, Poor things, poor things. And it all came to him that the gaping sight and the fat strangers with their guidebooks, and all those mean common people who thronged the shop, and their trivial desires and vulgar cares were mortal and must die. They too loved and must part from those they loved, and the son from his mother, and the wife from her husband, and perhaps it was more tragic because their lives were ugly and sordid, and they knew nothing that gave beauty to the world. There was one stone, which was very beautiful, and a bas-relief of two young men holding each other's hand, and the retinence of line. the simplicity made one link like to think That the sculptor here had been touched with a genuine emotion it was an exquisite memorial to that than which the world offers but one thing more precious to a friendship and as philip looked at it he felt the tears come to his eyes he thought of Hayward and his eager admiration for human when they first met and how disillusioned they had come and then indifference, till nothing held them together but habit and old memories. It was one of the queer things of life that you saw a person every day for months and were so intimate with him that you could not imagine existence without him, then separation came and everything went on in the same way, and you can comp- and the companion, who had seemed essential, proved unnecessary. Your life preceded and you did not even miss him. Philip thought of those early days in Heidelberg, when Hayward, capable of great things, had been full of enthusiasm for the future, and how little by little achieving nothing, he had resigned himself to failure. Now he was dead, his death had been as futile as his life. he died ingloriously of a stupid disease, failing once more, even at the end, to accomplish anything. It was just the same now as it had ever had as if he had never lived Philip asked himself desperately, what was the use of living at all? It all seemed inane. It was the same with Cronchro. It was quite unimportant that he had lived and he had died and forgotten his book of poems sold in a remainder by second-hand booksellers. His life seemed to have served nothing except to give a pushing journalist occasion to write an article review, and Philip cried out in his soul, what is the use of it? The effort was so incommensurate with the result. The bright hopes of youth had to be paid for, at such a bitter price of disillusionment, pain and disease and unhappiness weighed down to the scale so heavily. What did it all mean? He thought it was, an, an- you cannot imagine how it ever could have escaped you. The answer was obvious. Life had no meaning. On the Earth, satellite of the star speeding through space, living things had arisen under the influence of conditions which were part of the planet's history, and as if there had been a beginning of life upon it, under the influence of other conditions, there would be an end. Man, no more significant than other forms of life, had come, not as the climax of creation, but as a physical reaction to the environment. Philip remembered the story of the Eastern King, who, desiring to know the history of man, was brought By a sage, 500 volumes, busy with affairs of the state, he bade him to go and condense it. And twenty years later, the sage came back and returned. And now the history was no more than fifty volumes. But the king, who was too old to read so many long pages, bade him to go and shorten it once more. Twenty years passed again, and the sage, old and grey, brought a single book in which the knowledge of the king had soared. But the king lay on his deathbed and had no time to read it, and even that. And he said to the sage, Give me a history in one single line. And it was this, he was born, he suffered, and he died. There was no meaning in life, and the man, by living, served no end. It was immaterial, whether he was born or not born, whether he lived or ceased to live, life was insignificant and death without consequence. Philip, exalted as he had exalted in his boyhood, when he waited for belief. In God was lifted from his shoulders. It seemed to him that the last burden of responsibility was taken from him, and for the first time he was utterly free. His insignificance was turned to power, and he felt himself suddenly equal with the cruel fate which had seemed to persecute him, for if, if life was meaningless, the world was robbed of its cruelty." What he did, or left undone, did not matter. Failure was unimportant, and success amounted to nothing. He was the most inconsiderate creature in that swarming mass of mankind, which, for a brief space, occupied the surface of the earth. And he was almighty, because he wrenched from chaos the secret of its nothingness. Thoughts came tumbling over one another in Philip's eager fancy, and he took long breaths of joyous satisfaction. He felt inclined to leap and sing. He had not been so happy for months. Oh, life!' he cried in his heart. "'O life, where is thy sting?' For the same upbrush of fancy which had shown him with all the force of the mathematical demonstration that life had no meaning, brought with it another idea, and that was why Cronshaw, he imagined, had given him the Persian rug. As the weaver elaborately elaborated his pattern for no end but the pleasure of his aesthetic sense, so might a man live his life, or if one was forced to believe that his actions were outside his choosing, so might a man look at his life, that it made a pattern. There was a little need to do this as there was use. It was merely something he did for his own pleasure. Out of the manifold events of his life, his deeds, his feelings, his thoughts, he might make a design regular, elaborate, complicated or beautiful, and though it might not be more than an illusion that he had the power of selection, though it might be more than a fantastic ledger main in which appearances were interwoven with moonbeams that did not matter, it seemed, and so to him it was. In the vast warp of life, a river arising from no spring and flowing endlessly to no sea, With the background to his fancies that there was no meaning and that nothing was important, a man might get a personal satisfaction in selecting the various strands that worked out the pattern. There was one pattern, the most obvious, perfect and beautiful, in which a man was born, grew to manhood, married, produced children, toiled for his bread and died, but there were others, intricate and wonderful, in which happiness did not enter and in which success was not attempted, and in them might be discovered a more troubling grace." Some lives, and Hayward's was among them, the blind indifference of chance cut off while the design was still imperfect, and then the solace was comfortable that it did not matter. Other lives, such as Cronshaw's, offered a pattern, which was difficult to follow. The point of view had to be shifted, and old standards had to be altered before one could understand that such a life was its own justification. Philip thought in the throwing over the desire for happiness he was, casting aside the last of his illusions. His life had seemed horrible when it was measured by its happiness, but now he seemed to gather strength as he realized that it might be measured by something else. Happiness mattered as little as pain they came in both of them as all the other details of his life came in into the labor of the design. He seemed for an instant to stand above the accidents of his existence and he felt that he could not affect him again as they had done before. Whatever happened to him now would be one more motive to add to the complexity of the pattern. And when the end approached, he would rejoice in its completion. It would be a work of art, and it would be none the less beautiful because he alone knew of its existence, and with his death, it would at once cease to be. Philip was happy. Cool, what a great chapter. Wow, Philip, you're so smart and awesome, and everyone likes you. That's the end of that chapter. Have your say at this thingy. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.